Hi, I'm Evan from Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm Nicole from Toronto. I'm Jake from Chattanooga. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Comedian Michael Ian Black has a new memoir. Up until now, Black had been known on screen for being kind of, I don't know, smarmy, which works in sketch comedy or when you're a talking head on VH1. I have a knack for saying awful things, uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy with that. But it is not the totality of how I want to present myself to the world. It, it, it can feel a little bit limiting. It can feel a little bit constraining. And part of the reason that I wrote this book was to start dismantling that persona. It's bullseye. <laughs> This week, Michael Ian Black talks about his memoir, You're Not Doing It Right, tales of marriage, sex, death, and other humiliations. Plus, he explains why he started compulsively Googling the phrase, Fat Kevin Federline. The writer Tom Bissell recalls his path to creative success and why that road probably doesn't exist anymore. And comedian Pete Holmes reveals the thing that really ticks him off, a bad sandwich. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we like to check in with some of our favorite culture critics to find out something that is worth your time. This week, it's video games and two of our favorite video game critics, um, or at least two of our favorite video game enthusiasts, Kumail Nanjiani from the Indoor Kids podcast and video game writer Heather Ann Campbell. Heather, Kumail, welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's a joy to have you. That sounded mocking, Kumail. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Very insincere. Yeah. Oh, well, it's okay. You know, what can you do? Kumail, why don't I start off with you this time around, and uh, let's talk a little bit about this game called I Am Alive. I have to admit that I have an Xbox 360. I have yet to download even one game to it. I Am Alive is a new game by Ubisoft, I think. Yeah, Ubisoft Singapore. Ubisoft Singapore. And oh, that's my re- favorite Ubisoft. It's really got that Singapore feel to it, yeah, you know? street food, you know, the whole nine yards. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic world, but what I thought was really interesting about it is that, you know, most games, when you think of post-apocalyptic, you think of something like uh, uh, Borderlands. You're driving around shooting a bunch of things, and that game's awesome. But this one takes a new approach where you have a gun, but you only really ever have one or two bullets at a time. Uh, food is really hard to come by. Uh, it's got a really bleak atmosphere. The colors are very muted. It's very gray, very dull. It feels very sad while you're playing. It's, very, it's like the road, the game. It is like the road, <laughs> the game. It's very emotionally affecting. And also, you know, a lot of these video game characters, the main guy is this sort of superhuman guy who can run around and do anything. This guy has a stamina meter so if he's climbing and he runs out of the stamina meter he falls down and and, dies and he dies jesse this guy dies and it manipulates your sense of like uh justice towards your fellow man like you'll run across people who are who are sick or dying and you have something that can save them but the game is already pretty hard to begin with so if you give them your medicine you know the chances are you'll die later and have to start all over again and they'll weep and beg (laughs) 
It's really downer. Well, I helped them out, Heather, because I'm just kind of a good person like that, you know? I, I didn't. I didn't because I'm playing it like the road the game. Well, you know what happens, though? If you help them out, you get an extra continue. So there is a reason for helping them out. You don't need that continue if you have the medicine. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, Heather, let's talk about this game Skullgirls, uh, which I hope will be a little bit less upsetting uh, than I Am Alive. Well, uh, Skullgirls is a, a fighting game, which means, you know, you versus somebody else, either uh, the machine or somebody online. Uh, and what's exciting about it is it's a, an independent uh, game. So it's being developed with people who play video games uh, sort of for a living, like tournament gamers. And there's constant refinement happening in the engine of the game so that it is balanced, so that it is interesting, so that uh, casual gamers can pick it up, but also hardcore people who only play video games all day long can get a lot of depth out of the, the system itself. Plus, it gives you the opportunity to control the mysterious Skull Heart, which is an artifact that has the ability to grant wishes, <laughs> albeit at a substantial cost. <laughs> and it's all females. I think there's yeah, one male character, right? I think it's like all, yeah, it might be one dude in that game. Yeah, and one thing that did, you know, a big selling point for a lot of these games is how many characters they have. Like Ultra Mars' Capcom, I think, has over 40 or something. With yeah. this, they only have a few characters. They don't have that many, but... They claim that the game is completely balanced, that all the characters... Because that's the one thing that can break a fighting game. If you have one character who's overpowered, that game becomes useless in tournament settings. So with Skullgirls, they decided to do a small number of characters, but really make them all equal, uh, but different. Well, Heather, Kumail, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. Thanks for having us. Heather Ann Campbell recommends Skullgirls, which is out now on PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. You can find her video game writing all over everywhere, and you can find her performing with her show, The Midnight Show, presented by Drew Carey, currently on national tour. Kumail Nanjiani recommends I Am Alive, which you can download for the Xbox 360. Um, You can hear him on his podcast, The Indoor Kids. Uh, You can find him performing stand-up comedy around the country and on your televisions on the smash hit television program Franklin and Bash on TNT. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Michael Ian Black made his name in comedy as a college dropout, a member of The State, the sketch comedy group on MTV in the 1990s. He's also worked extensively as an actor um, on the beloved show Ed, among many others, as a man who made smarmy comments about various pop cultural phenomena on VH1 when that was the sole form of programming that VH1 carried and um, most recently has become one of the internet's most popular jokesters on Twitter with, I just looked and it was over 1.7 million followers. His new book, which is his second book of comic writing, is called You're Not Doing It Right. It's very different from his first. His first was in keeping with the comedic persona that he's developed over the past 20 or so years. (laughs) Um, No, over the past 20 or so years, his new book, however, is not at all arch or semi-ironic or uh, snarky. In fact, it's uh, it's a very sincere look at uh, family 
and uh, both the joys and difficulties of the deepest relationships in our lives. I thought we'd kick things off with a clip from his stand-up comedy album, Very Famous. He talks a little bit in this clip about his relationship with his kids. As it turns out, having kids isn't all that it's cracked up to be. I had a bad experience with my kids last week. It's my son's birthday, and he decided he wanted a cat for his birthday. And I didn't want a cat, because we had had another pet. My son had a hamster, and the hamster did what hamsters do. It died. (laughs) And that was traumatic for the kids, you know what I mean? And I didn't want to go through that again with another pet. You know, cats live 20 years. Well, you know, hey, what killed the cat, you guys? What killed the cat? Curiosity? No. Feline leukemia. (laughs) Um, Michael Ian Black, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. Great to be here. You started doing stand-up comedy relatively late in your comedy career. Um, It was only, what, about maybe 10 years ago that you you really earnestly started doing stand-up? Oh, much less than that. Probably five years ago, four years ago. Um, tell me why you decided to do that. Because I had always admired the form very much and, uh, decided ultimately that if I was ever going to try my own hand at it, I, I had better start doing that. So when my last TV show got unceremoniously canceled, um, as all of my TV shows do, I had some Usually, we should explain that. Usually in Hollywood, they have what's called a canceling ceremony. That's right. (laughs) Where where you are presented uh, with the corpse of your show, (laughs) and it's put on a pyre and lit. uh, lit. Pushed out to sea. Yes, and it's a gorgeous, beautiful, heart-rending ceremony. Uh, Because I work primarily on basic cable, they don't have that kind of budget. Right. So at best, it's a phone call. Right. So my last TV show, Michael and Michael Have Issues, was canceled, and I was sort of heartbroken and, and, and didn't really know what to do with myself. And rather than jump back into television to get my heart broken yet again, I decided to focus on stand-up, to just sort of take a, a sabbatical from television and really focus on stand-up, more as a challenge to myself than anything else, just to see if I could do it, just to see if I could get good at it. Um, and the jury's still out on that. I mean, here's the thing. I think that... There is nothing that will, and you know this as, uh, you know, a member of the comedy community for 20 years when you started doing this, that there is nothing that will upset a a longtime stand-up comedian more than a stand-up comedy dilettante, Mm -hmm. someone that they see as being a stand-up comedy dilettante. I mean, it used to be, you will still hear... I I still sometimes hear a stand-up comedian that I know complaining about the phenomenon in the mid-80s of actors doing stand-up to get acting jobs. Uh, yeah. I'm not familiar with that phenomenon. That has not happened since like 1986. Right. You know, it was like Michael Keaton or something. I don't know whether Michael Keaton is an example of this, but he is either inspired But he is a or, something. If yes. not a direct example of this yes. in the sentence or something, he could be the something. So he's either, he's either an inspiration for or an example of this. Right. But, you know, that, that stand-up comedians having, you know, 
spent 20 years having to hone their craft in order to just not get things thrown at them. Mm-hmm. Hate anybody that they think might possibly be a dilettante. Right. And you knew that when you started. Oh, I'm of course. Sure. Yes, but... Uh, yes, I'm aware of that. B, uh, yes wasn't A. Yes, A, <laughs> I'm aware of that. B, it wasn't like I had never done stand-up before. Um, um, I'd spent actually a lot of time in the early 90s doing alternative comedy in the, in, the, in the very early New York alternative comedy rooms that existed. There were only a couple of them. And I would hang out there and, and hang out with, with uh, probably some of the people you're describing. So I had some experience, but what I didn't have was a real – I hadn't spent time developing it as a craft in, in a real significant way. I hadn't really delved into it in a, in a conscious, thoughtful manner. Um, and so I don't I, – I, you know, I, I, I don't apologize for doing it later. Um, it, it was something that I felt like I wanted to do, and I did it. I mean, that's a thing that is – remarkable to me because I know that for me, you know, I'm 30 years old and I've been hosting this show for 10 years and the prospect of starting even in a, even in a directly related new field, (laughs) you know what I mean? You'd be a wonderful news broadcaster, for example. Thank you very much. Um, You're just saying that because of my gleaming white teeth, but I appreciate it. And gleaming white skin. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I use gleam on both. (laughs) Um, But I I mean, I I like the prospect of starting even in a related field, especially one where it's not necessarily a, you know, welcoming with open arms environment. You have to really choose that. Like, it's not just a, you you can't sort of casually you know, tiptoe into it. No, I had to really jump in with both feet. And the way to do that was to start booking myself in comedy clubs, which I had avoided, uh, to use the trite phrase, like a plague for years, because I I thought they were sort of these cheesy, overpriced places um, where only a specific kind of comedy was going to be welcome. I thought my audience wouldn't, wouldn't, seek me out in those places. And I was just afraid. I was just afraid. I, I, I was afraid I couldn't go over in those places. So I specifically sought those places out. I specifically said, this is the kind of place I want to play because I want to challenge myself in this environment. I want to see what it's like. I want to do those six shows over the course of a weekend with an audience who may not be there specifically to see me. They might've just come out for a night of comedy. I want to deal with the bachelorette parties. I want to deal with the drunk guys. I want to. I want to uh, envelop myself in this world to see if I can handle it. I mean, it was like a walkabout or something. Why did you want that? Because I, I had something to that prove to myself. Hor- You're describing something horrible. <laughs> yeah, but I had something to prove to myself. I, 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 I wanted to prove to myself that I didn't exist solely comedically on the periphery of comedy that 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 I was capable of writing jokes that could appeal to people that weren't 22 year old hipsters with ironic mustaches it was it was important to me i don't know why it was a challenge was it partly because you yourself were no longer a 22 year old hipster with an ironic mustache yes, or equivalent absolutely it was absolutely part of that that i felt like 
there's going to come a time, and that time might be coming very soon, when that audience no longer is interested in me or what I have to say. And I have to figure out ways to broaden uh, my audience. I have to figure out ways to appeal to other people. That might sound cynical. I don't mean it to. Um, to me, it's, it's practical. It's, 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 it's just a practical thing that I, that I have to think about as I, as I get older. Maybe you are different too, though, right? Yes, I absolutely am different, and my sensibility is changing. And obviously, I, like any comedian, will talk about what's going on in my life. And my in my life right now, I have a wife and I have kids, and um, the the people who are coming to see me don't necessarily share those things. Um, I hope that I can speak to them in a way that they find funny and relatable, but I also hope that other people will come along for that ride. You have, uh, of the 11, I think it is, members of the state, the sketch comedy group that you started with. Is that the right number, mm-hmm. 11? Um, you have the probably the most developed comic persona. Um, you know, in a, in a sketch comedy group, um, you know, there are, there are people who are, you know, chameleonic, which is a word that I hope means like a chameleon. It does. That's exactly what that word means. And there are people with a... Per- but it, it ends with a Q. It doesn't end I-C, as you might think. Right. It ends I-Q. And also it's an energy drink. Yes. <laughs> um, but there are, you know, there are people who you know, are a man of a thousand voices, and there are people who bring, a, you know, who bring a really strong persona to the table. And I think that you, in all of your work, have always brought a persona that you have refined over the years. Um, and, you know, I think that that was, you know, one of the biggest touchstones in your career was th- all of the VH1 stuff that you did, where you were one of the defining voices of this, I mean, cultural phenomenon, like a thing that had a huge impact in our culture. And you were one of the biggest parts of it because you were so good at it. Um, and that involved you making this persona really big and intense. Yes, that's uh, right. And and at some point, like that persona, which was um, very grating, smarmy, annoying, obnoxious, fey. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna say smug and arch, maybe. Oh, but we could we, look. We could list adjectives <laughs> all day. You don't want to include charming, like roguishly charming, in there. But absolutely no. I mean, I think that the the reason that you can do it, I mean, just just like you know, just just like the reason anyone who can do that can do it is because of the fact that you're charming. I mean, you know, why can Joel McHale just go around acting like a jerk? It's because he's very he's great at it, right? And he's he's very charming and funny and talented. Got tremendous pecs too. I think that helps. That's I don't have the true. pecs. Yeah. And he's like six five. Also, he's a huge <sighs> man, so he could just take down anybody who. But anyway, Joel McHale aside, I mean, you had this really big persona that was who you were in public, and at some point, that must have been. I am. I imagine that to be like a little bit uncomfortable. It was, and it is, and part of the reason that I wrote this book was to start dismantling that persona. Not that I want to turn my back on it exactly because I, I think I am good at it and I do find that stuff funny and I have a knack for saying awful things. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, I'm happy with that, but it is not 
the totality of how I want to present myself to the world. It, it, it can feel a little bit limiting. It can feel a little bit constraining. And it's not as much fun as it once was. So for me, it's important to start finding other sources of inspiration. And, and, the, and the obvious place to look for that is my actual life and my actual personality and, and the person that I, I think of myself as. Did you find people in real life that I guess were, were reacting to you like you were your character? Not so much. Um, that was that wasn't really a problem. I, I mean, think I'm not talking about your family. No, I, mean, I know. I, I think uh, sometimes you know, like if I look at my Twitter feed and somebody met me, they'll say, "Oh, he wasn't he wasn't a head at all," <laughs> which I guess is good, right? <laughs> I do find that I have to really make an effort to be kind to people, not because I don't want to be, but because I'm shy and self-conscious. And so I, it, it's hard for me to just take that moment with somebody and look them in the eye and shake their hand and, and, and accept what they have to, to say to me. And generally, it's, it's a compliment because that's, that's generally what you say to people when you approach them. It's hard for me to do that. It's, it's, it's uninstinctive. And for years, I sort of pushed people away when they did that. Um, and that kind of got absorbed into my comedic persona. But Again, it's like it's, it, that's not how I want to portray myself to the world as, and it's not who I am. It, 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 it's an effort that I have to put forth to engage and be kind and, and to try. Trying is so hard. I hate trying. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Michael Ian Black, was a founding member of this state, and he's also a stand-up comedian, actor, and writer. His new book is You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. You write in the book about um, fat Kevin Federline, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, a subject that you you become in writing the book very interested in, which is the sort of latter day Kevin Federline, who folks might, uh, you know, he was married to Britney Spears and was a, a dancer, um, a professional dancer. That's how he met Britney Spears, and um, later was not married to Britney Spears and became fat. Yeah. And that's pretty, that's like, uh, you don't really know much more about Kevin Federline besides that, I don't think. I don't know anything about him more than that. Okay, so tell me what you project onto fat Kevin Federline of yourself and your own worries. FKF, (laughs) as I call him. I found myself Googling images of fat Kevin Federline for hours at a time, not really fully understanding why I was doing that. I'm still not sure I do. However, what I arrived at eventually was two things. One, I have, I have a, a, a very mild form of body dysmorphia where I feel I am always on the verge of obesity. Uh, if, if your listeners know what I look like, I'm a fairly thin guy. Right. But I have this fear that like tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I will have put on 80 pounds and... And I don't know what the consequences of that be uh, of that would be other than maybe I would lose everything. I don't know. I don't know why one would follow the other, but it seems like perhaps they would. Well, it's possible that you work in show business. I don't know. if Maybe it might open up. It It might open up a whole new thing in show business. Maybe. All right. That that, yes. That, That maybe it's that. So I have body dysmorphia. So then coupled with that is I think that's the initial attraction that led me to FKF. And then. I look at him 
and I see somebody who, who appears to my eye to be somebody utterly bewildered as to how he found himself in the peculiar circumstances of his own life. He's shirtless. He's got <laughs> cornrows. He's poolside. There's some sort of beverage in his hand. And, you know, he just, he just looks like the, uh, the before picture of the Ed Hardy diet plan or something like that. <laughs> and I just became fascinated by this imagery because, because it seemed to me that here is a guy who just doesn't know where he is. And I, I relate to that very much. I'm projecting onto him. Obviously, I don't know how he feels, but I find myself feeling that way, find myself feeling like I discover myself in the circumstances of a life I could not predict for myself. And yet here I am. In the book, I describe it as uh, deja vu is what I call it. This feeling of, um, you know, deja vu. Deja vu is when you when you are, are doing something for the first time, but feel as if you've done it before. I have an opposite thing where I'm doing the things that I always do, and feeling like it's it's for the first time. Looking around and going like, what is this? Like, how how did I find myself in this house with these with these children and this woman, who I am responsible for financially? Uh, and emotionally, but primarily financially. I mean, it seems like when you throw yourself into something that terrifies you, um, whatever it may be, whether it's, you know, going up and doing stand-up at a stand-up club, which I think is, you know, I think that's, that's probably still kind of terrifying for a comedian who is as equipped to handle it as any person in the world. It's probably still a little terrifying for Jimmy Pardo or Bill Burr, Mm -hmm. you know, comedians who are as good at that as anyone. Um, The thing about it is that you at least know that you're choosing, right? Yeah. I'm, I've made... Because the pain reminds you that you're choosing. <laughs> well, I've made all these conscious choices in my life. Marriage is exactly the same for me. Marriage was about as scary uh, an institution as, as anything, but I deliberately made the choice and made it very consciously about approaching it even though it scared me or maybe even partially because it scared me. Because I felt like, here is this person that I love and... I don't see us breaking up, but I'm not sure I believe in marriage. But if I don't see us breaking up, then why not sort of move forward? Why not take that next step other than fear? And I, I, in the book, I, 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 I mention, and this is absolutely true, I had this little mantra in my head going, choose hope over fear, choose hope over fear, which sounds very Oprah-esque. Um, and it was said in Oprah's voice, <laughs> but that's what I decided to do. And I, I decided to, to, to choose my hope for this relationship over the fears that I had for its dissolution. After a break, Michael Ian Black reflects on couples therapy. What I was hoping to hear from my therapist was that I am always right. <laughs> that was my expectation going in. <laughs> and I was very disappointed when that was not borne out in our sessions. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Jesse Thorne here. 
I host a thing called Max FunCon in the mountains above Los Angeles. It's half comedy festival, half creativity retreat. This fall, for the first time, we're bringing Max FunCon to the East Coast. Yes, the weekend of October 26th in the Poconos Mountains. It's a full weekend with some of the best minds in arts and entertainment and some of the best new friends you will ever make. Tickets will sell out quickly. Get yours at maxfuncon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the actor and comedian Michael Ian Black about his new book, You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. I mean, I, I can really... I really strongly related to you describing those feelings of thinking about whether or not you should get married because, you know, I was with my wife for a long time before we got married and we had been together literally since high school. Mm -hmm. And there is a point, I think there's something, there's something that is not often described because it's not that romantic, but there's something vaguely unnatural about, the, I think the reason that that the, that men often are the ones who ask women to marry them and that societal convention came from is because there's something weirdly unnatural about it. You know, that there has to be a lot of things that have to go right in order for it to work, which is, you know, which is what you want for something that's supposed to be for your entire life. Yeah. Right? And I remember having that thought to myself, thinking like, okay, Jesse, like, A... You've been with this lady for years, and it's going great. Mm -hmm. Let me see how I can screw it up. Yeah, like, like, (laughs) like B, whenever you think about future years, this lady is also there. Mm -hmm. C, you have no moral or other objection to marriage. Right. So what's the problem? Right. But it's it's terrifying nonetheless. It's absolutely terrifying because you do, because it's the one thing in your life you really don't want to screw up. To me, the reason the reasons to get married are kind of what you're describing. It's not so much that you're hoping all these things are going to line up and they're going to, they're going to go right because inevitably they won't line up and they won't go right. But by taking that next step, in effect, what you're saying is when they go wrong, which they will do, we won't give up on it. We're not going to just untangle this knot and and say, you know, Godspeed and 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 goodbye. We're making a commitment to it to to just try to work through these things as they as they come up. I'm certainly somebody who believes in divorce, um, and six weeks from now, I will probably be divorced, right? Because I only look at my marriage in six week increments, but. And I mean, you're also on a book tour where you're oh. exclusively talking about your marriage. And well, also, I mean, if you guys could see the studio dripping with hot ladies, it's it, nothing but hot ladies. I've never described that from part of every the corner of the world. It seems like right. It's it's incredible. Well, we don't have any Antarctic women, but uh, okay. I mean, you say it, I believe it, but from where I'm sitting, it's well, just light was wall to wall. It's gorgeous city here, right? So I don't, you know, to me, marriage was about making that choice to progress through life together. Um, maybe it's, it's probably a, a, a sort of, I, mean, I know it is, it's a very sort of romantic notion. Um, and so, you know, so far it's been good. The but I've only been married for 10 days. <laughs> the other day I was at an estate sale and I was listening to This American Life on my headphones and... uh 
uh, Ira was talking to uh, Kurt Brownaller, the very funny New York comedian. And Kurt said something about how um, uh, if he ever entered into a marriage, he might like to have a, a clause in the marriage where after five years, I think it was, the the two the couple would say to each other this. yeah the couple would say to each other um you know are we still good uh-huh. and there it would basically be an out it would be a five year out clause just a <laughs> double checking clause and Ira Ira said well in in my book isn't that sort of the opposite and I nearly I was so touched by what Ira said uh-huh. <laughs> I mean I I let I know Kurt too but. I, and and Kurt's awesome. It's not anti-Kurt, but um, well, you don't like Kurt. You don't like Kurt. It's no big deal. <laughs> <That> big oaf. <laughs> He's going to be on the show soon. But um, I I almost started crying. Like is standing in this um, estate sale, <laughs> surrounded by fifty-year-old Filipinas. Right. Um, Grieving Filipinos. I mean, because somebody had probably just died to precipitate this estate sale. Right. But I mean, when someone dies, you, the family doesn't all get together at the estate sale. They go to like a funeral and a, oh i suppose that's wake. right yeah they don't the celebration isn't held at the it's, it's a very anti it doesn't seem like a bad idea to me a wake and estate sale is not i mean i understand for efficiency's sake yeah because you, you only have to once. rent one venue yes but it's just sort of like i mean it's sort of like having the fireworks display and the Marines funeral in the same place on the 4th of July. Save a lot of time. Right. But it's just not quite the same tone, uh-huh. I guess, is the I issue. I think I understand what you're saying. Right. And, and just, we agree to disagree. We'll move on. <laughs> so a- anyway, a, a, lot of, a, a lot of what your book is about is about not just fighting in marriage, but fighting for marriage, that your relationship with your wife and your love for your wife and hers for you are so important to you that the pain and difficulties, which are tremendous, are absolutely worth enduring because you're in this marriage. I believe that I'm going to get corny uh, because that is my instinct these days. I do believe that the way we talk about love in society is faulty because we talk about falling in love and being in love, which to me makes it sound as if it is something that happens to you, a kind of passive act that washes over you and you are just swept away in its, in its unavoidable tidal currents. I don't believe that to be the case. I believe that love is a choice you make uh, and that marriage is a choice you make. And it's not a choice that you make once. It's a choice you, you literally have to make every day. You have to make it often many times in a day, which isn't to say that, you, you know, you just snap your fingers and you go, all right, I, I give up. But you do have to constantly, I have to constantly recommit to this idea of marriage pretty much every day. I have to recommit to the idea of love pretty much every day. It is something you have to put forth as opposed to something you hope to receive. Um, that's how I, I look at it. And I don't always succeed at it. I'm often terrible at it. I'm often somebody who is incapable of loving my wife. Uh, sometimes I'm incapable of loving my children. But in the next moment, you try again. Your parents had... Uh 
a sort of an ill-fated marriage. They were star-crossed lovers, yes. Um, one a Capulet, one a Montague. Yes. But I, I wonder if it made you think about what you wanted your family to be like when you had a family. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about how... If I thought about my sort of uh, adult relationships at all, I sort of envisioned that I would be, uh, uh, the phrase that I use in the book is an unrepentant fornicator of women. <laughs> I sort of thought I would just be a traveling bard going around from city to city, bedding comely young maidens, and then leaving, you know, with the next frigate out of port. That's sort of how I envisioned myself, if I envisioned myself at all. Or possibly in your semi-truck. Well, you do describe an interest in possibly being a long haul trucker. There was a moment in the 70s where being a long haul trucker was sort of the coolest occupation that a young boy could aspire to. There were books about it and movies and television shows about it. And I certainly was not immune from the lures of the open road. Uh, There were debates in my household, which is the better uh, truck company, Mac or Kenworth? And we would... Try to figure that out. It's international, actually. Well, the correct, did you know. the correct answer is Mac. Uh, oh, if I only, stand corrected. Yeah. yeah you, you're forgiven for not knowing that, but it, and it has to do with the hood ornament, which is a bulldog. Right. A, a leaden, heavy bulldog. That's why it's a superior truck. So I gave up that dream. Uh, although I may return to it at some point. <laughs> I I didn't really envision marriage for myself, not because I not because I had a, any specific objection to it. It just didn't seem like it was in my future, and it wasn't until I I was in my twenties probably that I started thinking about it in any any thoughtful way, which is probably what most people do. What did you think about it when you thought about it in your twenties? Well, before I met my wife, um. I guess I guess the older I got, the more receptive I was to it. But I still hadn't given up this idea of being a Lothario. Uh, in fact, I did everything I could to become a Lothario, and mm. was terrible at it. Yeah, <laughs> terrible at it. I, I just I'm I, I'm 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 not good at seducing women. Uh, I'm not particularly good at at sex. I don't have like you know the kind of body that's going to draw uh, the kind of ladies that I I would like to me. And then I'm too, like, emotionally invested in, like, one-night stands. It, I, I'm just not good at it. Um, but I was good at having long-term monogamous relationships. And once I accepted that, once I sort of wrapped my head around the fact that this is actually who I am, the idea of marriage became much more appealing. Tell me about how your life changed when you got married. Well, we'd, we'd been living together, and... I don't know that it immediately changed because I think when we got married, it's like buying a new stereo or something and you just twiddle the knobs all the time. And you're like, oh, this stereo sounds great. And look, it it has this function and that function. We can have all all our presets. And so you have that stereo and you're like, this is an amazing stereo. And then after a while, you're sort of like, the stereo isn't quite as enchanting as it once was. You still like it. But you're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I can play FMAM and great. It's fine. And then at some point, something goes wrong with the stereo and that's when you're married. Um, it's something that I eased into, you know, it wasn't something that, that radically changed my life overnight. It, 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 it probably took years for me to feel as if I was married and really understood what that meant. 
What did it mean? It meant a commitment to another person that existed on a, in a sense, it exists in a deeper way and in a separate way than the vows that we took when we married. The vows are lovely and all of them are applicable, but the day-to-day life of marriage is slightly different. It is, or maybe it's not, but when you, when you experience it, when you experience the, uh, the, 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 the trivialities of it, the, 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 the bickering, the issues that come up, the, the, the work, the, the work of marriage often is about, isn't about the other person. It's about shining the light on yourself and understanding that the issues that you're having with that other person more often than not are really about what's going on with you. That wasn't apparent to me when we got married. You sort of think, oh, I found this soulmate. And so we're, we're destined to be together. The deeper you get into marriage, the deeper I've gotten into marriage, the more I've realized that the conflicts that we rub up against uh, so often are really about ourselves and not about the other person. I think of it like jigsaw puzzle pieces that you're just sort of trying to fit together and and you sometimes have to sand down these pieces and you have to you have to you have to adjust them and change them and 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 once you get them in, then they suddenly fly apart again. It's um it, it's a it's a constant effort. And the effort, I don't mean in the sense of tedium. I don't mean in the sense of protracted labor, like chopping down trees. But the effort is a kind of emotional awareness and emotional availability um, and a willingness to look at yourself. All of that isn't encompassed in the vows, but it's to me the most important aspect of marriage. My son is nine months old and was a um, a very uh, well-behaved baby, mm. relatively speaking, I think. Um, and it was – and him coming into my life has still been – Traumatic, awful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I go – you know, I go see him. You know, I work from home we're in my house right now. I go downstairs and see him and, and, you know, lights up my life. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's as traumatic. It's as traumatic as anything that has ever happened to me in my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, and you write a little bit in the book about the way that, uh, I think especially when you're a dad, um, you kind of have to build the connection with your kid. Um, I mean, I think it's true for any parent probably, but um, I certainly related to that, that it just doesn't, I mean, you you have a connection with your kid. I mean, you look at your kid when your child is born and you love your child and everything. But the kind of love that, you where you know parents say that they'll murder someone you know that good liam neesony sure murderous rampage type love that's that's what you're looking for as a parent you're yes. looking for murderous rampage love yes <laughs> yes um that not with my daughter that's what you're looking for right 
um, that that is something that is that is hard to get to. That yeah. it's that it takes time and commitment and it is a built thing. It is not a thing that just washes into you like, you know, like smoking drugs. You know what I mean? You don't just like, yeah, was, oh man, I, I, I'm so high on love. I, w- I was just sort of seeing wh- what uh, image you were going to go with after washing into you. <laughs> yeah. I probably could have helped out. <laughs> sure. But my head popped because I heard washing into. <laughs> like a and then nasal you came up- rinse. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Yeah. Like a saline nasal rinse. Beautiful. Better okay. than, than smoking drugs. Because <laughs> it, it, it holds the liquid <laughs> right. idea. Sure. <laughs> you don't smoke liquid drugs? Uh, no. Is that why I've been having such a hard time <laughs> with my drug smoking? Well, it's just, when they're liquid, oftentimes they're just so all I get combustible. Is, all I get is kind of a bird sound. Yeah, like you a, don't want that. <laughs> you want to you want to get your, so much you want to get yourself a good mortal and a, a good mortar and a good pestle. You just want to crush all that stuff up into a fine powder, right? Uh, and then you, you roll it into the thing. And Not like a no sound. No, no, no. You don't want that. I want to chase the a, dragon. I've been using a bubble pipe. Is that correct? Oh, a bubble pipe. Yes, depending on what it is, that could absolutely be correct. Okay. Anyway, so but this um, that love is the, to even to acknowledge. That that is not something that just comes out at twelve out of ten is a kind of scary thing to say to to write down in a book that other people will read. I didn't anticipate that when my first child uh, was born. I didn't anticipate the feelings of indifference that I would have towards this <laughs> little thing. I I bought into the popular notion of a nasal rinse washing over me. Uh, a nasal rinse of love and the, the the love that you described that 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 initial love of of course you love your child it wasn't a given for me it was a given for me that i felt protective of this being mm-hmm. that i would do everything in my power to keep it safe and warm but to me that was different than actually loving my son who was I, an unlovable baby i remember worrying when my baby was a newborn I remember having the thought, oh, no, maybe I love my dog more than my baby. (laughs) I don't know your dog, but that seems entirely possible to me that in that moment you did love your dog more than your baby. The the dog was probably far less demanding and far more affectionate than the baby. (laughs) The baby had no interest in me at all. Well, here's the thing. Openly contemptuous. Of course, as babies are. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because I play poker, I trust statistics. To a certain extent. I trust the odds. So even though when my baby was born, I knew almost immediately that I didn't love this child the way I thought I would. I trusted that there were enough parents who loved their babies. <laughs> and, and that has been the case for eons. That statistically speaking, I would probably at some point fall in love with my child. So I didn't quite have that fear like, oh, my God, maybe I'm defective in, in, in some manner. Maybe I just don't have that gene. I mean, I think every, every parent, new parent, fears, fears they're going to be a terrible, terrible parent. And, and I had that and still have that. But I, but I, I, I trusted that, that that love would come as it has. Your your both of your children were um, in 
were seriously colicky. The first one was colicky, and that sort of pushed pushed you to the breaking point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one turned out to be colickier than the first one. Yes. Um, tell me how that uh, affected your life and and also your relationship. I read this. I read this. I was reading this book with the somewhat corny title of and baby makes three (laughs) (laughs) about, about making, you know, having a happy relationship after you have a baby. Sure. And, um, I would like to have one and, um, not that I don't, there was something that's, I can't remember exactly what it said and I'm on public radio. So people are going to assume that this is a news report, but I, I think it was the, Two thirds, at, at, at three years after a baby is born, two thirds of uh, marriages turn unhappy. Oh sure, <laughs> it was something nightmarishly bad, like not just slightly bad, yeah, but horribly. I'm bad. surprised it's not seven eighths or ten elevenths. Ours certainly did. I mean, it did, but but it didn't stay unhappy. That's the thing. It's a it 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 was torturous, and I mean that literally. It was a torturous time in my life. The, you know, sleep deprivation is a, is a torture. That's something that we, we, we do to people in Abu Ghraib. Well, it's an enhanced interrogation. Technique. Fine. Yes, you're right. It's an enhanced interrogation. And that's what my marriage was going through. Uh, and then there is the unceasing crying that's what they they do to people in Abu Ghraib. They 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 play loud music all the time. The lights are on all the time, which is kind of what it is when you have a baby. You're you're constantly up and moving, and and uh, it is a form of enhanced interrogation. And and we didn't have help. It was just the two of us dealing with this irascible little hellion that she created, and so. It was terrible. It was it was the worst time in both of our lives, and it certainly um, was 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 terrible for our relationship. How could it not be? Um, we were both suffering, and and both kind of immune to the other person's suffering. Uh, we were we were snippy with each other, and angry all the time, and resentful towards each other. Uh, I don't think that that's always the case with young parents. It was with us. Um, I think largely because our, our baby was, both of our babies were colicky, which is really just a catch-all term that means they're miserable all the time. They're always miserable, always crying, always awake, and there's nothing you can do. There's, there's just nothing you can do. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest, Michael Ian Black, is an actor, writer, and comedian, one of the founding members of The State, and the author of the new book, you're not doing it right. Tales of marriage, sex, death, and other humiliations, which looks at his difficult but rewarding marriage and relationship with his kids. You went to therapy with your wife, and you're very frank about the thing that you, the sort of basic outline of what you learned in therapy uh, 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 or from therapy, uh, which was basically that if if I might paraphrase that sometimes you're kind of a jerk and sometimes your wife is kind of crazy yeah oh yeah uh what i was hoping to hear from my therapist was that i am always right (laughs) that was my expectation going in (laughs) and i was very disappointed when that was not borne out in our sessions (laughs) 
Although sometimes I did feel like I detected in my therapist's eyes a glint of acknowledgement that, that I was probably right in most circumstances. Now, that might be projection on my part or just some sort of fervent hope. But yeah, I mean, I am often terrible. Uh, I do terrible things all the time. I don't mean to. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm aware that I'm doing it and sometimes I'm not, but I always feel self-righteous. I mean, that's, that's, that's the one leg I have to stand on is that I'm always (laughs) (laughs) self-righteous. I wouldn't act the way I acted if I didn't feel on some level that morally I was correct every single time I told her to clean the bathroom, her damn self. Uh, and but what what was surprising is that you know my wife who i think considered herself somewhat unflappable well she didn't consider herself unflappable but certainly didn't think that that uh certainly didn't think that the focus would turn to her much the way i didn't think that the, the focus would turn to me i think she entered therapy with the exact same expectations that i entered it with that the therapist would say yes martha you're absolutely correct about everything that you say I don't think she was quite prepared for the level of self-examination that she was put through, um, that we've both been put through. And it's been great. It's been really great. One of the things about writing a book that is so intensely personal and so intense as, as intense as this book is that, um, you know, if, if you're a, if you're a single dude, um, and you're, you know, doing stand-up comedy, you are sort of understood to be representing only yourself and your personal perspective on the world. And it's not even really, you know, I think most audiences' expectations of a stand-up comedian are very broad in terms of interpretation of reality. You know, they are understood to be funny first and representing truth second. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you write a book that's this intense about yourself and your family, um, you are representing publicly yourself and the people that are closest to you. And I'm presuming that your wife's not also going to write a book about your family. I'll sue her if she does. (laughs) And, (laughs) And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if, we'll see if your kids grow up to write a book about your family. I hope they do. Um, Reagan children's style. <laughs> um, They'll have nothing but great things to say about their father. Um, but it, that's a, I mean, that's a really significant responsibility, especially if you have decided or find yourself not to just say platitudes. Yes. And of course I was aware of that. But my thinking, and this might've been faulty, was that if I tell the truth, they can't be mad at me. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible that's faulty. It's possible. If I just tell the truth, well, that's what happened. (laughs) Um, My thinking was I have, the responsibility I have, honestly, was to presenting my story the way I experienced it. Now, my wife was understandably reticent about me embarking on this pursuit and said, you're not doing that. 
And then I said, oh, yeah, it'd be fine. You're going to love it. And then uh, when it was finally done and she read it, uh, she, to my surprise, was okay with it. You know, she was like, yeah, that's kind of what happened. In the end, I mean, the book's a, sort of a a very passionate argument in favor of having these relationships. I mean, having having a marriage and having children that you love. It's a passionate argument for me to have those things. I'm definitely not out there as an advocate for anything. I'm not saying marriage is right for everybody. Parenthood is right for everybody. I am saying that it was right for me. Um, dis- despite all my doubts, despite all the ways that I've fallen short, despite all the flaws that I have, that I, 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 I've come to accept and, 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 and have tried to, to work on. Um, but it's been, it's been, it's been right for me and, and, and I assume will be for the next six weeks. Michael Ian Black is a comedy writer and performer and also a very gifted memoirist. His new book is called You're Not Doing It Right, Tales of Marriage, Sex, Death, and Other Humiliations. Michael, thanks for being on Bullseye. Thank you so much, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Last year, Pete Holmes was named one of Variety's 10 comedians to watch. And as a stand-up, he has a mostly goofy and positive attitude. But there is one thing that really does set him off. A bad sandwich. Here's Pete Holmes from his album, Impregnated with Wonder. I ate at Subway today. I ate at Subway because I gave up. I know we all go there. I know we all go to Subway. It's always crowded. That's part A. Part B, it's horrible. You know this. You know. Remember when we used to make sandwiches as a people? Like 20 years ago, you'd gather the ingredients like an old-timey chef, and you'd take a bite and be like, now that's a sandwich. Then the first time you go to Subway, you're like, what the f*** is this? There's no discerning between the layers. It's like biting into an eraser. Everything at Subway tastes the same. It all tastes the way the restaurant smells. You know what I'm talking about? That vague cardboard sawdust smell. Everything, the sandwich, your soda, your receipt, it's saturated in that smell. And they do it in front of you, you know, because you see. And you can tell, because when you're in Subway and waiting in line, part of you is looking forward to your sandwich. But in the back of your mind, you're just like, something up is happening here. I can't quite put my finger on it, but the call is coming from inside the house. And they let you watch. That's their big idea. Like, you're like, you're a king. You're like, choose from the bounty. Tis been a good year. More orange tomatoes, my leech. It's gross. Have you ever, 
for the love of God been in a subway when they run out of turkey? They don't just flick the lights, perfect blackness, flick them back on and have more. That's what they should do. What they do do is reach down into the bowels of hell and pull out another shrink-wrapped plastic tube of turkey with all the pieces the exact same size, laser cut like coasters with the fake skin airbrushed on the side. They don't even try to hide it. They cut it out with that little yellow knife. Satan's air is released. And we just stand there like schmucks, like, yeah, three disgusting pieces. Can I have double meat? They're like, yeah. Everything's sitting in those black open-air S&M containers. You can see your reflection in the wet ham. It's gross. You shouldn't be able to watch someone make something so disgusting. Bring it from the back. That's what the back is for. If this is what they're doing in the front, what the hell are they doing in the back? It's like shaving a gorilla. Like, no, no fat gorilla, Brad. Jared's naked up to here in marinara. It's like, eat fresh. Probably going to go there tomorrow. Probably going to eat there after the show. That's Pete Holmes from his album Impregnated with Wonder. You can find his podcast, You Made It Weird, on iTunes or at Nerdist.com. And follow him on Twitter at Pete Holmes, that's with a Z, H-O-L-M-E-Z. After a break, Tom Bissell talks about the creative process, and my favorite fictional guy, Malcolm Tucker, offers some creative language. If enough, you need to learn to shut your f- It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hi, I'm homosexual Brian Safi. And I'm feminasty Erin Gibson. And we host Throwing Shade, a weekly podcast that looks at lady issues and gay issues and treats them with much less respect than they deserve. Erin, have you ever heard of gay marriage? No. Brian, ever heard of abortions? Never. Uh, gay stereotypes? No, thank you. Glass ceilings? I love laying on them. Brian and I have known each other for so long. So long. God, we know each other so well, we practically finish each other's Do you sex. have any more iced tea? Says... One day a week, we sit in Aaron's apartment and record the podcast. And then other days of the week, we sit in Aaron's apartment and don't record the podcast. Brian and I never have a guest because we want it to be all about us. Our parents didn't love us very much. We need a lot of attention. Lots of attention. Subscribe to Throwing Shade on iTunes. Or go to MaximumFun.org. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us at Twitter.com slash Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Tom Bissell, is a nonfiction writer who's written extensively for basically all of your classiest uh, nonfiction publications, uh, including The New Yorker and Harper's. He's also a video game writer for Slate and Grantland. His new book, uh, which is a collection of essays on creators and creation, is called Magic Hours. It's just been published by Believer Books. Uh, it covers subjects ranging from Werner Herzog, uh, a favorite of this program, to um, Chuck Lorre, the creator of Two and a Half Men, less of a favorite of this program. Um, Tom, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. I am delighted to be here. How did it feel for you when, as you were writing the um the opening piece in this book, which is about 
literary greats whose whose reputations were established by board, yeah borderline happenstance um for example uh, herman melville who you know moby dick is moby dick moby dick <laughs> yeah. Yeah. maybe I, maybe i should offer an introduction as to what <laughs> moby dick is um so moby dick is moby dick right and uh herman melville basically in his career he had had a earlier on in his career he had had a very successful novel um then his career basically washed out uh moby dick was received very poorly terribly um and it wasn't until he was pretty well long dead uh that it was revived in the early 20th century um and went on to become the template for you know uh novels <laughs> and yeah, and how about the, se- the, the, the i write about this that there was a brief swell of people were like moby dick is awesome do you know about this book moby dick and they gave it to joseph conrad who you know one of the greatest novelists of all time wrote heart of darkness nostromo um on you know under western eyes victory they give like the one guy that should have read Moby Dick and been like, oh my God, I can't believe this was forgotten. It's 1900. They give Conrad Moby Dick to write an introduction for a world classics line. And Conrad reads it and it's like, this is bull crap. You know, I, this book is not good. And so then like another 15, 20 years go by before anyone takes another look at Moby Dick. It's just so sad, you know? So Melville... Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson are these three American writers whose reputations, like, had it not been for, like, just total accidents, you know, we might not have ever heard of them. And the essay came about because of my experience being a 24-year-old assistant editor at a publishing house and bringing back into the world the work of a writer named Paula Fox, who uh, has since become wonderfully recognized as, like, one of the, you know, best sort of post-war American novelist. She's 88 years old. She's Courtney Love's grandmother. And she wrote like a series of ass-kickingly great novels in the 70s and 80s. And I was this kid that convinced W.W. Norton to put some of them back into print and they kind of took off. So that experience informed this essay where I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, this just happened because someone recommended this book to me and I read it and I liked it. And then just because I happened to be working here and because everyone was having a good day the day I brought it up and they wanted to like pat the eager kid on the head and let him, you know, spend thousand bucks on getting these books back into print. The, the complete randomness of these series of events just really kind of scared me. And that's where the essay came from. So then when I looked into the careers of some writers who, who came very close to not making it, that was the first kind of serious piece of nonfiction I ever wrote, and it has really kind of tempered and driven my understanding of the creative process ever since. Melville is particularly scary, just to take him as an example, because not only did Moby Dick and Melville as an author almost not become, get recognized, he died unrecognized. Totally. So he, and not only did he die unrecognized, he didn't die striving. Um, he died broken and given up. Yeah, he, 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 had, he, had, he had a hump in his career. So he was recognized, then destroyed. Then destroyed. And never had his comeback while he was alive. It's not like he, he always thought the, the, the morning was around the corner. He thought his morning was behind him and, and that the morning had been wrong. He was a customs agent in uh, New York City. Um, that's how he spent his life. And he, he went to the Holy Land near the end of his life. And he couldn't get anyone to publish his account of it. So he wrote 
private, he wrote and self-published like a, my trip to the Holy land. And he wrote some poems just for family and friends, basically. I mean, his poems aren't very good, but, um, that's kind of how he ended his life. Just as kind of the eccentric dude who wrote stuff for his family and friends and who was kind of successful early in his life and then just kind of disappeared. I mean, imagine that archetype. He's probably all around right now. There's probably Herman Melville's that you and I have even read. And we're like, oh, that was interesting. And then that writer never wrote again. And then maybe 100 years from now, that's going to be the guy that people are going to look at you and me and go, why didn't they recognize him? That keeps me up at night. Like, who is the Melville out there right now working at some crappy post office job, you know, with his one novel behind him? I don't know. That's why when I sit on a subway or, I, or I, you know, driving down the street or I'm walking, I'm always looking at people and I'm always trying to figure out what, what do they have? in their closets. What are they working on if they're creative people? You can't really write anyone off. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Tom Bissell. He's the author of Magic Hours, Essays on Creators and Creation. His writing explores the creative process in a variety of different fields, from war documentaries to literature to video games. You were, uh, you were originally and, and still are uh, partly a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And this is a book of nonfiction and you never studied journalism or intended to be a journalist. Um, Tell me about how you came into being a a narrative journalist, a, you know, magazine writer in the Harper's New Yorker, big, big story and Esquire (laughs) type world. The first thing I tell my students, and I hope if there are any young writers out there wondering about how one goes about doing this, the first thing I say is don't go to journalism school. It's a waste of time. Um, I frankly just don't think they, I mean, they'll teach you how to write a magazine piece, but you can pretty, pretty much figure that out on your own. Did you know that at journalism school, they take other stuff from you besides time? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're really expensive too. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'm really down on on the whole graduate experience in writing. Um, my whole thing is I just got done teaching an MFA program, a really great one, Portland State University. And it's a great school. It had awesome students that I adored. I loved teaching them every minute, and I had great colleagues. But I have to think more and more that asking young people to go sometimes tens of thousands of dollars into debt to pursue something that they have no guarantee of ever making a penny from feels to me kind of ethically dodgy. And I would never blame anyone for going to a place for a full ride, uh, you know, for, to grad school for, if, they, if they get a significant amount of money to do it. But there are very few, for whatever reason, magazine writing programs or journalism programs that give free rides. There are very few. Tons of fiction programs do it. But relatively few nonfiction magazine writing programs do it, I think because it's assumed that you can make a living. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so well, in the booming magazine, and the, and the, the booming magazine industry, which is just doing so well. So, uh, I, I started doing this cause I was a fiction writer, right. And I had an internship at Harper's magazine, a dude that I was an intern with, um, named Donovan Hone, who's become a very excellent writer in his own right. Um, since then he became an editor at Harper's and I went off to do something else. And he liked my stories and he thought that I had a nonfiction piece in me. You know, that's what they say when they're, trying not to get your hopes up so he's like look if you ever have an idea just come to me and tell me and we'll see what we can do and i didn't really know what the hell i was doing i was just casting about for something to write about to become like a magazine writer i thought that would be a 
a fun career. You know, as a struggling fiction writer, I wanted to figure out a way to support myself. And so I figured magazine journalism might be it. So when I heard Jeff Daniels was making this film about my hometown, what would it be like to see someone turn your hometown into a film? And said, Donovan, I think I have a piece. Would you give me an assignment? He's like, no, I can't give you an assignment. You're a 25-year-old nobody. But what I can do is I can write you a letter on Harper's Letterhead that you can give to the production, and they can think that you've got an assignment. So I went and did this piece, and I gave it to Donovan. Donovan liked it. He took it to Harper's. They liked it. Suddenly it was published, and like a week after it was on the stands, I get a phone call from an editor at another magazine who's like, hey, I read your piece in Harper's. Do you want to go to the Canadian Arctic to report on NASA's Mars training camp? And I'm like, well, wow, that's how this happens. Uh, Someone sees a piece that they like the voice in. You can tell a story. You can remember what happens with some style and some insight. Um, and people want to, to hear more from you. So this was in night. This is in 2000. Things are different now. Things are way different now. I'm not sure my path is really even a viable conceptual example to, to latch onto. However, it does, uh, reinforce my belief that the best way to learn how to write magazine pieces is to start with a piece that's important to you. In my case, it was a piece about my hometown and you have to convince someone to let you tell the piece that you are uniquely well-placed to tell. You have an essay in the book about uh, guides to writing, um, books about writing. Um, and it's an interesting mix of skeptical and hopeful. Um, I, I, wrote, uh, I wrote this piece uh, for the public radio website transom.org uh, not that long ago called Make Your Thing About um, making independent media, which is sort of what I do. And um, it bore the intended ironically subtitle uh, 1,000% guaranteed path to uh, absolutely no fail guaranteed success, something like that. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I was surprised by some of the violently negative reactions it got, which made me feel real bad. Well, people's irony-ometers just kind of <laughs> shut down when, when we were discussing. Right. Like, how to- yeah, sure. But I mean, it, but what it made me, what it made me engage with was the issue of whether it is, you know, to what extent you can teach people creativity, to what extent you can teach people you know, the skills and talents of whatever it is, and also to what extent it is moral and right to encourage people to pursue paths that are, frankly, unlikely to succeed. I mean, you know, if you start a restaurant, you're also unlikely to succeed. You know, if you... More people fail at becoming businessmen than fail at becoming artists. Yeah. is A lot more. Yeah. But um, I, I wonder how, after having after having considered that from a number of different perspectives, as a teacher yourself, as someone who came into his career through happenstance, um, and as someone who's you know the the opening essay of this book and one of the most powerful is about three of the greatest English language writers of all time who essentially all had their reputations secured through happenstance. Mm-hmm. Um, how you feel about that now, having, having given it a lot of consideration? 
I am a foolish optimist. I mm-hmm. really do believe because this 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 is my experience. If you want this enough and you're like fanatically devoted to it, you can make it happen. Every and then this is a totally But not to get all Brooke Gladstone on you, but isn't that just because that just happened to yeah, you? No, it's totally happened to me and because most of my friends are writers, it's happened for them. But then when I really start to think about it, I think of all my friends that are still plugging away and that it hasn't happened for, and they're talented and they're smart and they just haven't gotten the breaks. And so what I view it as is I'm an eternal optimist because if you're not an optimist about this stuff, you turn into something awful. You turn into a cynic or you turn into someone that hates the success of other people. And both of those things are just soul destroying, you know, um, uh, fates to court. Right. So I really do believe that the people who have managed to make a living as at being writers or actors or directors or anything, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of success here too, right? Chuck Lorre has $600 million and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, I'm happy that, you know, magazines pay me money to, you know, to go off and report on stuff. So, but the thing that, you know, someone like Chuck Lorre who has more money than he could ever spend and someone like a magazine writer like myself, what we have in common is that we're able to do something we really love. And, you know, and, and if you don't feel lucky, to be able to do that, you're, you're crazy. And that's what I loved about the piece I wrote about Chuck when he, he like faces up to that, where he's like, you know, if I don't take this seriously, then what the hell is my life even about? And I thought that was a really interesting thing for a guy who makes two and a half men to say that, and he does care and he does take it seriously. Um, so I, like I said, I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist. When I deal with students, I ask them, is writing something you would do even if you took out the, I'm going to get published and meet attractive people, the opposite sex because of it, uh, equation. If take that out of the equation, would you still do this? Would you still do it if you were sitting on an island by yourself? Would you still be making up characters and stories in your head? And all of them, of course, instantly say yes. And then I actually press down on them and I bear down on them. And I'm like, you really have to think about this because if the answer is even slightly no, you shouldn't be trying to do this because it's so frustrating and so depressing most of the time that the only thing that really can reinvigorate your drive as a creator at all is actually liking the work. So I try to spread joy and circumspection. I know those two words don't find their way into the same (laughs) sentence, but I try to spread a sense of joy and circumspection about one's chances at this, because if I can do it, um, I really do believe that anyone can. Tom Bissell, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. It was really great to have you on Thank the you, show. Jesse. It was a pleasure to be here. Tom Bissell's wonderful new book is called Magic Hours, Essays on Creators and Creation. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We always close the show with a suggestion from yours truly. It's the outshot. This week... I thought I'd talk a little about my favorite guy. His name is Malcolm Tucker, and he's a press flack for the Prime Minister's office in the UK. Also, he's a fictional character. I should make that clear. And also, also, he's a kind of terrible person. On the thick of it, which has finally made it to US TV on BBC America, Malcolm Tucker terrorizes a made-up cabinet ministry with streams of profanity so densely layered that when they're played on the radio, they basically sound like ship-to-shore Morse code. If enough, you need to learn to shut your right. 
today you have laid your first big fat egg of solid The Thick of It was created by Armando Iannucci, who's writing the HBO comedy Veep. And like Veep, it's about the people behind the veil of power. A group of hapless humans try to save their jobs, and every so often, a fire-breathing monster in the form of Malcolm Tucker tears them a new one. Grown men and women are left shaking in their boots as Tucker turns fire hoses of profanity upon them. Newspaper writers we never see try to tell the public the truth until Malcolm gets hold of them. He did not say unforeseeable. You may have heard him say that, but he did not say that, and that is a fact. Okay, okay, go ahead and print unforeseeable. Listen, see when I tell your wife about you and Angela Heaney at the Blackpool Conference, what would be best, an email, a phone call, or what? Hey, I could write it on a cake with those little silver balls. Your hack husband betrayed you on October the 4th, and congratulations on the new baby. Yeah, maybe it's better to spike it, yeah. Okay, f***ity bye. Tucker is played by Peter Capaldi, the sweet Scottish star of the cult film Local Hero, with his rage turned up to 11. But Tucker is also human. In fact, all of the characters on the show are the cabinet ministers, the prime minister, the press. The satire here cuts so close because the truth being revealed is that even the most powerful men and women in the world are just men and women. None of them are superhuman. They're just trying and a lot of the time failing. Though some of them have superhuman swearing abilities. Just do, otherwise you'll find yourself in the Caucasus, right? In a medieval war zone. The Thick of It airs Saturday nights at midnight on BBC America. That's my outshot. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Julia Smith is our producer, Nick White, our editor. Our interns are Joe Molinelli and Justin Morissette. Our theme music, Huddle Formation, by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. You can email me if you have thoughts about the show, jesse at MaximumFun.org. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign. Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog, Put This On presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at putthison.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.